Hello. Welcome to the myths and history of Greece and Rome. Before I start today, I'd just like to say a big thank you to anyone who has sent in a donation to the podcast. Please remember that anyone who sends in a donation of $15 or more gets PDF copies of the two e-books that I've written that cover the first 50 chapters of this podcast. All you need to do is email me your PayPal receipt number and I'll send you the copies within 24 hours. So, back to the podcast. Chapter 83, The Enemies Awake. I'm afraid this chapter comes with a bit of a health warning. Cassius Dio died in 235, and with him went the last reliable source of documentation for the period. Much of the next 50 years is very poorly recorded, and the records that do exist, such as the infamous Historia Augusta, are notoriously unreliable, and in many cases fictional. We have to rely on coinage and other non-documentary sources to put together a picture of what actually happened. The fall of Pupienus and Balbinus in 238 left Rome with a very young emperor yet again. Like Alexander Severus, Gordian was just 13 years old when he was, all of a sudden, the most important man, or in his case boy, in the empire. The Praetorian Guard thought they'd hit the jackpot this time. This boy was too young to have a mind of his own and the guards thought they could order him around so that they would in reality be in charge. Again though, the empire was stabilised by a strong woman. Gordian's mother, Antonia Gordiana, was as committed to guiding her son through his early reign as Julia Mamia had been at guiding Alexander. Like Julia, she assembled a council of good and reliable senators to help the young emperor rule. She also did another thing which turned out to be very wise. The ruling council appointed Gaius Furius Sabinus Aquila Timosithius as Praetorian prefect. Timosithius was popular with the Praetorian Guard. Gordiana had managed, by making a couple of shrewd and timely decisions, to bring the Senate on board and snuff out any potential resistance from the Praetorians. To cement this even further, the young Gordian married Timosithius's daughter Tranquilina. The marriage, as well as being politically perfect, was genuinely strong and happy. Now, Timosithius was a talented and visionary individual. During the early reign of the young emperor, he became the real power in the empire. He wasn't the emperor, but he was as powerful as the emperor. Fortunately, he was as good and loyal as he was effective, and his loyalty to Gordian never wavered. Timosithius had been born in 190, and had begun his career during the reign of Elagabalus. Throughout the reigns of Alexander Severus and Maximine Thrax, he was given many important jobs, and was a highly respected and well-liked man. This just shows the extent of his political abilities. He had survived the reign of the Thracian with his reputation intact. It was, therefore, fine with just about everyone that he was now in effective charge of the empire. Timosithius proved himself to be a brilliant administrator, and fair and just. The empire looked like it might be about to return to its former glories and be peaceful and prosperous once more. But no... The crisis of the 3rd century was not called the crisis of the 3rd century for nothing, and pretty soon chaos would be restored. This time, though, the chaos was caused as much by external invasions as by the civil wars of the previous years. And here, the lack of dis documented historical record becomes a problem. There is evidence from the burial of coins and other treasures that there was unrest on the northern borders in the west. There is virtually nothing to go on in trying to ascertain what actually happened. In the east, though, the course of events is a little better understood. 
The Sassanid king Artashir, who had waged war against the legions under Alexander Severus, had spent a few years thinking about what he should do next. He slowly began to reassemble his armies ready for a new attack on Roman territory. When he heard that Maximin was dead and that Rome had a new boy emperor, he decided that the time was right. Artashir himself, though, was now an old man and he knew he would not be able to lead his forces to victory by himself. He appointed his son, Sharpor, to rule with him. Within a couple of years, Artashir was dead and Sharpor was ready to challenge the Roman Empire. He was only 25 years old. In 240 and 241, Sassanid forces encroached into Mesopotamia and drove the Romans out of the major cities, including Hatra. Then they crossed over the true border into Syria. In Rome, the news was greeted with anger and Timosithius began to prepare for war. Before he could give the east his full attention, though, he had to put down some barbarian uprisings on the Danube frontier. A new tribe was threatening the borders. Timosithius defeated the incursion quite easily. What the Romans were not to know was that this new barbarian enemy was going to cause the empire more trouble than any other, and in the end would play a key role in its downfall. I'll leave you to guess who they were. Timosithius marched east with the legions and personally led the Roman fight back. He was victorious over the forces of Sharpor. Timosithius wanted the emperor to be present for the final victory, so Gordian was called from Rome so that he could be there for the triumph. Gordian travelled east, and in autumn 243 he arrived in Antioch, ready to get a really good seat to view the victory against the Sassanids. Unfortunately, luck once again deserted the Romans, just as they might have been bringing back some stability to the empire. Timosithius fell gravely ill, and within a few days he died. Gordian had lost his closest colleague and was not sure what to do next, so he decided to wait a bit and not begin the final push to destroy the Sassanid army. Now the first thing he needed to do, of course, was find a Praetorian prefect who could be just as capable and loyal as the great Timosithius. An officer in the guard named Gaius Julius Priscus became close to the emperor and suggested he knew a man who would make a great prefect. This man just happened to be his brother. Gordian agreed, and in 244, Marcus Julius Verus Philippus was appointed as Praetorian Prefect. Not much is known about the early life of Philippus, but we know he was born in Roman Arabia, which is why history has come to call this man Philip the Arab. There is some doubt about what happened next. In fact, there are at least four versions. Version 1, the Persian version. The Sassanid records say there was a big battle which the Romans lost and Gordian III was killed. The Romans didn't like admitting the legions had been defeated and they couldn't possibly admit that an emperor had been killed in battle. This had never happened in the history of Imperial Rome, so they might have tried to destroy all records of the battle, if it actually happened. Version 2, Philip the Arab's version. Gordian simply died of natural causes. Yes he did, it wasn't me. Oh no, of course not. Version 3, the unknown assassin version. Gordian was killed by some unknown person who had a grudge against him. Version 4, the widely accepted version. Most people believe that Gordian III was assassinated by somebody, although nobody knows who, on the orders of his loyal Praetorian prefect. Whichever version is true, what is in absolutely no doubt is that by the end of 244, Gordian III was dead and Philip the Arab was emperor. Poor old Gordian although I should probably say poor young Gordian, was just 19 years old when he died. The Praetorian Guard proclaimed Philip Emperor and the Senate were forced again to agree.
Philip was prudent and sensible enough to treat the ashes of his predecessor with the greatest of respect. They were transported back to Rome and interred with the solemnest of ceremonies. The Senate was asked to declare Gordian III a god. This was good thinking. Philip didn't absolutely need the support of the Senate, but it could come in handy. Like Macrinus, Philip faced, as his most important task, the problem of ending a difficult war in the East. He was more fortunate in his negotiations than Macrinus had been. Philip made a peace treaty with the Sassanid Persian king, as part of which he agreed to pay the equivalent of 50 million sesterces and possibly an annual tribute. The treaty enabled the new emperor to travel westward to Rome. The fact that he had bought his way out of the war in the east did not go down too well with everyone. In fact, though, it was vital. Philip avoided making the same mistake that Maximin had made. He made his way straight to Rome as soon as was prudent. In doing so, he further cemented his relationship with the Senate and the ancient body warmed to him. Even so, nobody can be quite sure why Philip was displayed before the soldiers as their new emperor instead of his more accomplished brother, Priscus. But Priscus went on to have extraordinary power in the East during the new regime. Priscus is described in one inscription as Rector Orientis, which means King of the East, and he exercised supreme authority over armies and provinces from his headquarters in Antioch. So, although the barbarians were still restless, not a lot actually happened during the reign of Philip the Arab. There were a few revolts, but revolts were common during the 50 years of chaos, and Philip's reign was not any better or worse than most others. Campaigns were fought in Dacia and on the Danube frontier, probably against the Quadi. Philip must have been reasonably successful in these endeavours, because he saw fit to give himself the title Germanicus Maximus and returned to Rome in triumph. There was, though, one really important event during his reign. In 248, the Roman Empire celebrated the new millennium. It was a thousand years since the foundation of Rome by Romulus, or so the Romans convinced themselves. This was an occasion of great significance and could not go by without a huge celebration. Philip threw the most impressive games that Rome had ever seen. Thousands of gladiators, fighting men and exotic animals were killed in the Circus Maximus and the Flavian Amphitheatre, and everyone had a truly great time. The coins of the time show lions and deer, and also hippopotami, all displayed and killed for the entertainment of the public. Money had been scarce in the times leading up to the games, but Philip had the sense to realise this was not a time to put the treasury before the will of the people. He spent lavishly, and the event lived up to its significance. A great time was had by all, and was improved even further when a monetary bonus was distributed to the people of Rome. For a brief time, Philip the Arab was the most popular emperor that Rome had had for some time. This popularity didn't last long. Even as the celebrations were finishing, there were at least three revolts against the emperor, which were put down. It's highly likely that Philip's brother Priscus was killed around this time, as he is entirely lost to the historical record, something which is very unusual for one so powerful. The worst of the revolts seems to have been led by a man known as Jotapianus. In late 248, a revolt sprung up in the Danube border provinces, and Philip was very worried. He completely lost his nerve and stood up in front of the senators and offered his resignation. The Senate heard the news in deathly silence. They didn't know what to do. Until one man stood up and declared, These troops don't know what they're doing. The rebellion won't last and soon the soldiers will kill their leaders and all will be fine. Before too long, this senator was proved correct. Philip was delighted by the support and stepped back from his offer to resign. 
And this is how a man called Gaius Messius Quintus Decius became the most trusted colleague of Philip the Arab. Philip thought that Decius was the best thing since sliced bread, and Decius became his most trusted colleague, which is why, when the Danube legions became restless again, there was only one man Philip trusted to sort the situation out. He sent Decius to Moesia to put the legions in their place. In one way, sending Decius to sort the legions out was a great idea. He was popular and loyal and could do a good job. On the other hand, he was much more popular and much more capable, so it was thought, than Philip himself. In reality, sending Decius to sort out the problem was the worst decision that Philip the Arab ever made. The popular senator travelled to Moesia and had every intention of telling the legions to stop being so silly and get back to work. When he arrived, though, he found that feeling was very strong and the situation was a lot worse than he had expected. All the Danube legions wanted was to be rid of Philip and have a new emperor who might stand up to these awful barbarians who were raiding Roman territory as if nobody cared. Decius spoke to the troops and tried to get them to calm down, but they weren't having it. They said they were going to rebel and they wanted Decius to lead them. Decius said no, but the troops said he had better lead them or he was a dead man and his head would soon be on a spike. So Decius agreed. The legions headed south towards Rome and met Philip's army in Italy. Philip was defeated and within a few days he and his son were dead. It's not known quite how they died. One school of thought is they died in battle, but it's just as likely they were taken back to their own camp and murdered by their own troops. The Senate happily proclaimed Decius Emperor and looked forward to some much better days ahead. They were about to be very, very disappointed. Next time, we'll take another short detour from our story and examine the origins of some of the barbarian tribes who are about to become Rome's most serious enemies. If you're enjoying the podcast, then please go to www.mythandhistory.podbean.com or just send me an email to mythandhistory at gmail.com. You can also friend me on Facebook, Paul Vincent Myth and History. So, have a great couple of weeks and I'll speak to you next time.